You are listening to a message from City Church of Richmond, located in Richmond, Virginia. We are a broken people, loved by God, continually restored by Christ, and sent out to worship God, serve our city, and work for its renewal. To learn more about City Church and to find out how to get connected to our community, visit our website at citychurchrva.com. That's C-I-T-Y-C-H-U-R-C-H-R-V-A.com. And thanks for listening. We are at Palm Sunday, and we're looking at Luke 19 today. In Luke 19, Jesus walks out and presents himself like a sunrise on a cool spring morning. He's entering into his final phase of ministry. Final phase of ministry, which includes him being worthy, presenting himself as worthy of worship. He presents himself as weeping over the sins of the city, wipes away his tears, and then he wrecks the plans of those who would keep his people from worship. Today's rather traditional Palm Sunday message is going to begin with Jesus confidently arranging the things that happen at the beginning of the the Passion Week so that his suffering and redemption is laid out with precision, just according to plan. We put together projects and plans for our work. Jesus put together projects and plans for his redemption from the foundations of the earth. He could have stopped with his radical success that he had as the triumphal entry to Jerusalem went according to plan. Everyone's cheering. Everyone's excited. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't take a victory lap, but he's overcome with emotion. He weeps over the city, and he predicts to perfection what would happen in 40 years, showing that only he could, he could not only arrange redemption perfectly, but he could also arrange judgment perfectly as well. From the deep emotion of grief, he's then filled with a righteous anger as he moves deeper into the city and finds the temple already being destroyed, already being defiled by the apostate leadership of the church long before Rome would raise it. We're going to read now the scripture for the day from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 46. You can find this in your bulletin or look it up any manner you may so choose. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem and when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount which is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying go into the village in front of you where upon entering you will find a colt tied which no one has ever yet sat untie it and bring it here and if you want to ask you why are you untying it you shall say this the lord has need of it so those who were sent away found it just as he told them and as they were untying the colt its owners said to them why are you untying the colt And they said, the Lord has need of it. 
And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their coats on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they'd seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and summon you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. This is the word of the Lord. Father, open up your word to us now fully through the power of your Holy Spirit. And let your word now enter more than just our ears, but go deep inside your people today, encouraging, convicting, transforming. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so Luke's been telling a story, as all the gospel writers have been. And it's a pretty busy-sounding story. All the things that, the mundane things that have to be done, the administrative task, all that kind of gets compressed. And Jesus is pretty busy moving around, especially when you read the book of Mark and that story of Jesus' ministry. He's immediately doing this and immediately doing that. But one thing that you don't see happening very much is Jesus being applauded and praised. Collective public joy over Jesus' work doesn't seem to happen very much. He, he, you hear stories about individuals or a couple of people rejoicing, but mostly it was just one or two people grateful and maybe even bewildered at what Jesus had done in their lives. Even his disciples couldn't figure out exactly how to feel about what Jesus was all about. But Luke has been laying down clues for us, showing all along that Jesus was carrying out a mission that he and the Father planned from the foundation of the earth and that that mission was coming to a head. How do we know he planned it? Well, look at the instructions he gives his disciples starting around verse 30. He tells his disciples to go to a village. He tells them they're going to find a colt there, one that hasn't been broken, one that hasn't been trained. Take it 
We see him describing everything they would see with such confidence. It sounds like he had written it as a screenplay, that he had written it beforehand so that it would turn out exactly the way it should. Jesus doesn't speak here like a helpless young rabbi caught up in social, religious, and political turmoil about to be murdered. He speaks like one to whom reality has revealed all her secrets. We see this in other parts of the gospel. Jesus mentions uh, over and over again, the gospel writers mention that Jesus knew the thoughts of his enemies, that he knew the thoughts and what his disciples were whispering about. He knew the motivations of those who supported him and who opposed him. He knew who would betray him, and he knew who would stand by his side. The thought of Jesus' perfect knowledge of people and events, especially at the beginning of this week, his week of suffering and shame, should give us pause. Every person who's thinking about becoming a Christian, of opening the door and entering into the church, and every person who's thinking about opening the door and leaving. Think about that Christ knows your heart. He knows your struggles. He knows your secrets. He knows what's bringing you shame and doubt. And yet, he loves you anyways. He loves you and cares for you. Isn't that one of the sweetest things about the Christian faith? I was talking to a woman a couple of weeks ago, and she said, for the first time in my life, my father in his 80s has started talking to me about his life, about his heart. And he started revealing things to me. And he's not a Christian. And how do I use this as a way to share the gospel? We talked about it for a while. Because I thought she knew the answer. And what I said to her was, I think you need to ask him what's on his mind. That he's been wanting to say to you for years. And then when he says that, say, is there anything else you want to say? And keep saying that until he's finished. And she said, I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> I said, but if you don't do that, then you won't be able to say to him, now, Dad, let me tell you about Jesus because I get to do this with him all the time and he loves me and cares for me, and opens his heart and his mind to me in spite of my secrets, in spite of my shame. Pray for that family, that they will be able to talk about the sweet things of the gospel together for the first time. Jesus knowing everything 
what this means to people like me and like you who have doubt. This is important for us as well. With each and every prophecy that Jesus gives, this story shows that no one would be able to deny that Jesus Christ and His Father planned and controlled what was about to happen during this bloody week. It didn't just happen by accident. The public and prophetic nature of, of this week of events gave the early church and gives us good reason for confidence that it did not happen by a clever plot, but by the hand of the Almighty God Himself. Whenever we experience doubt, and we all do sometimes, talk to it with these texts. Ask doubt how it can explain this. Put your doubt on the defensive with the story of Jesus and His perfect, meticulous plan for how the weeks, the week of His passion would fall out. Moving on to the next story. There's so much to say there. But moving on to the next story in verse 41, we see Jesus with the cheers of the crowd still dying down. He steps aside to weep and prophesy over the city. He knew what was about to happen that week. He knew what was about to happen in 40 years when all of Israel's national sin against the God that they had covenanted with would crash down around them in the events of A.D. 70 and the awful destruction of the temple. But look how great Jesus' compassion is for those who would, in just a few days, kill him calling for his crucifixion. Again, he knew their cruelties. He knew how they were going to mock him. He already knew their self-righteous religious excuses that they were about to give for what they were about to do. He knew the pride the Roman soldiers would take in their efficient rendering of him into a puddle of nothing. But as he thought about the consequences for what these people would do, he did not call 10,000 angels down to stop it. But instead, he wept. He wept over a people who were wicked and we're not going to get much better, at least soon enough to spare him. This is where the Apostle Paul learned to weep over his people in Romans 9. This is where the disciples, the apostles, learned to have great sadness and sorrow of heart over those who defy 
the law, and the gospel. If Jesus sobs over wicked, undeserving people who don't know what they're going to do, then two points. Number one, first, that helps us to understand how he feels about me when I wander foolishly and sometimes very intentionally into sin and that it's not raging anger that's his first impulse. It's pity and grief. We see this language in Ephesians 4. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. We see how Jesus' disciples imitated him in Paul in Romans 9. And therefore we know that it is God's will for us to imitate Christ as well. And choose pity rather than simply rage as our first response towards those who sin against us. We can weep and know that as we are united to Jesus, that he weeps with us. He shares those tears with us. Now before we leave this passage... I want to mention one more thing. It's a little dark. J.C. Ryle mentioned, mentioned this years ago when I read it. Look at verse 42. Would that you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And so Jesus, the Son of God, has visited Jerusalem, spending years teaching and preaching, the greatest teaching that you could ever imagine, the best illustrations, the, the, bringing in the emotions in the heart at just the right moment. Everything that you could want and then at the end, he does a miracle just to prove that everything he said was true. And Jesus says, in the face of this, but now they are hidden from your eyes. They had the clearest call to repentance and faith that any city had ever experienced, and yet so many disregarded so many ignored him, and so many hated and wanted him to die. There was a time and place where they had an extraordinary opportunity to have eternal life shown to them, displayed to them. So I want to say today, if you are considering coming to Jesus, being baptized, being confirmed as ready for communion, or maybe you're thinking of something else, exiting the church because you're fed up with stuff. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. Yes, God is patient and kind, but today is the very best day to turn to Christ with all of your questions, with 
your doubts, with your frustrations. Do you seriously think all that's going to get better without Jesus? Come to Him. Bring yourself to Him. Because we don't know the point in time where our opportunity to hear and act on the truth will depart. Today is the day of salvation. Call upon the name of the Lord. So we turn now from the praise and public adoration of an all-knowing Messiah to a tenderly weeping man of sorrows, and now we get to something that looks more like a madman. Jesus cleansing the temple. Briefly, somewhat academically, but still really important to say, this story is told throughout the Gospels and all four of the Gospels. Uh, in the uh, synoptics, that's all told as something that happened during this time later in Jesus' ministry. But it's found in John chapter 2 in the book of John. This has led scholars to lose their minds. Did, is, are there two? Are there two of these? Did he do it once in the beginning and once in the end? What's going on here? I'm going to skip over the lengthy discussion about this and simply say that the book of John is not strictly chronological. John rearranges some events and some teachings so that it will help to go along with the geography of how his book is laid out because it's laid out somewhat geographically and with the I am sayings and the teachings and the miracles associated with those. And that doesn't always end up as being laid out chronologically. So I'm okay with there just being one cleansing of the temple based on that, but it raises an important question. The important question is this. Why would John think that this is so significant? that you have to see Jesus' cleansing of the temple at the very beginning of his ministry, or else you don't understand properly the rest of it. Why would he move it around like that? What is so important about understanding Jesus and this thing that he does? Well... I hope that we'll understand the answer to that question in just a moment. There were certainly matters of injustice and crime that disturbed Jesus. He called the temple a robber's den in Mark 11, and that was referencing the money changing and the uh, purchasing of sacrificial supplies in the outer courts of the temple, being criminal because they charged exorbitant fees. But John 2 doesn't focus on the merchandisers and the retail aspect of this. He focuses more on where it was happening. That is, it was inside the temple courts in the court of the Gentiles. Mark says the same, showing that what they're doing is interfering with the essential purpose of the temple. As he says in Mark eleven seventeen that, this is supposed to be the house of prayer for all nations. 
And what they were doing was keeping all the nations from coming in by setting up their retail in the space that was set aside for the Gentiles to come and pray. (coughs) So instead of the temple being a welcome place of prayer for all the nations who were converting or partially converting to Judaism, the Gentiles were forced to step in and over various kinds of animal dung as they came into the court of the Gentiles. Instead of the temple being a place of prayer, it was a place where they would become unclean and unsuitable to worship the Almighty God. Functionally, this simply prohibited Gentiles from entering into the area that was assigned for them. And that didn't seem to bother the Jews of Jesus' day. Many of them didn't want the Gentiles there anyhow. As long as they gave their money to the, the folks that they were supposed to give their money to, that was all that was required. So with this context, now maybe we're getting the answer to the question of why John would put this event at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, at the very beginning of his gospel. Why would you want the reader to see the rest of Jesus' ministry through the goggles of this event? Because this was Jesus' plan from the beginning. Not just the beginning of his ministry, but from the foundations of the world. It was his plan to reunite the various kinds of people that were in the sin-tossed world and unite them into a new fellowship of Jesus Christ, worshiping the one true God. It was his plan to make one big court of the Gentiles where all the various people who were God's elect could be gathered in and gathered up in his arms. Now this is rather straightforward in John and Mark, but there's one little historical tidbit I want to mention before I leave this to close. According to records, especially Josephus is very clear about it, the cobblestones of the court of the Gentiles were made up of different shades and colors to represent the mixed nations that were there. Imagine standing back with a, maybe with a drone and you go up and you look down at this speckled variegated cobblestones whereas the rest of it is white, a bright white and even. Now As you're thinking about that, with that picture in your mind, let's zoom ahead to the book of Revelation and listen to the description of the the, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem that comes down from God out of heaven in Revelation 12. The wall was built of jasper. The city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation of the wall of the city was adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth 
emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, and the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl, and the street of the city made of pure gold like transparent glass. Do you see this speckled, variegated place that God has made for us in the coming kingdom? It's one big court of the Gentiles, but not with leftover bricks that didn't match the rest of the temple, but with the finest of jewels. It's God's plan to make one big court of the Gentiles. The final place where God dwells copies the court of the Gentiles, expands it to every foundation, every floor, every wall. And that's where we're headed. And therefore, that's what determines our course today. Because that's what the restoration, the full consummation looks like. This helps determine our current course today in our churches, in our lives. Because if that's where we're heading, that helps us to understand and guide us on where we're going. What needs to be removed to keep us from achieving this view of our future. What do we need to do differently? All I know is we're headed toward a glorious mixing of every race and tongue and class. And that Christ is going to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, draw His elect from every part of the world into His church. And we also see from the text that if you want to experience Christ's wrath upon the church, then get in the way of that. If you want to experience His tears, if you want to be worshiping and praising with His friends, we see that in the text, but we can't ignore that this is how you get on Jesus' bad side. This is when he wipes the tears out of his eyes and gets a whip and begins to discipline his church and his people. When the church becomes a roadblock rather than a road sign pointing all people to him. The temple of Jesus' day should have prefigured the hope of God's restored creation. All the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Let us go to the mountain of the Lord. This is what Isaiah believed would happen in Isaiah chapter 2. This is what he saw as the future. But alas, in many churches, it's not what you see today. And one look at this text tells us how Jesus feels about it. As we consider now the praise of the crowds to Jesus, his tears of pity for the lost in the church of his day, and his anger at those who kept those different 
at a distance. We could do a lot worse than anchoring our own emotions this Easter week in praise, in pity, and in righteous anger. As we enter into this next week, praise, weep, and don't feel bad if you're kind of mad about the shape the church is in. Jesus knows how you feel. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Send your spirit now as our hearts struggle to apply such a big thing. But I thank you that your spirit is alive and well today and fully able to draw our hearts toward practical repentance and awe at your majesty, at your lordship. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And God's people said, Amen.